And it, yeah, it dawned on me, like, why would the world's you know third richest person who runs some of the largest, most disruptive companies in the world and wants to take people to Mars and everything, why is he, why is he wasting time shilling dog money? And it's because it's personal. It's because he really is hurt that he's not the person doing this and he's not Satoshi and he didn't reinvent the entire world's financial system. Started during lockdown, needed something to do. They looked at each other, they said, hey, I like talking to you. And so from a garden shed in a box room in West London, they're discussing tech. It's the Small Time Bets Podcast. Did you watch Google I.O.? I did, yeah. Did you watch the whole thing or did you yeah, do I what did. I did? What were your big uh, takeaways? Google used to be like a cool company that did loads of like pushing the envelope type things. And now it kind of, the announcements feel a lot like incremental changes here and there that have made small things better. Like in spite of myself, I'm really impressed with the way that this screen brightens from the power button outwards. If you, if you touch the power on or as you pick up the screen, of an Android phone, it will brighten from the bottom upwards. I'm really impressed with the color palette being informed by the home screen photo you choose, and then reinforming like material design has become material you or something, BBC me, I don't know what it's called. So <laughs> I think that stuff like that is really cool. But then you, you have to step back and go, all right, so what you've made a smartwatch with Samsung, you've done something called smart canvas. In WWDC, I think they take a lot of they do a lot of work to filter out the noise of here are all the incremental release notes. They they filter that all out. They take a step back and they say, okay, so here's the big picture. This is the story. And here are the groups it's in. And every now and again, you'll see a slide that shows, I don't know, 20 or 40 different updates all in one slide. And they're, they're all in little boxes. And that's the compromise they got to. Listening to Google I.O., it felt like I was being walked through the 40 little boxes that all fly in. Interesting takeaways. What did you think of Lambda? Like, I know it was a few years ago, wasn't it, when they did that previous version of conversational Google Assistant stuff. But they're getting a lot, it's getting a lot clever. There's a big focus on AI. If you look at how much they're doing and you kind of stripped away a few hardware points, majority is this big data AI, which has always been Google's thing, right? I felt like they're doing a lot more in that space now. But like you said, it's not clear and refined. It's kind of, and here's some cool stuff we did with multimodal models to search videos or find mountain ranges that you can drive past in Google Maps. Um, yeah. So people really, people really applauded when you could skip to the part, you could do a search where you're asking to see the part of the video where the lion roars at sunset. And because the AI can parse what that actual query means and what's happening in the video, it can take you to the exact part, which is core Google search. And if you elevate Google search into true AI of being able to understand rather than parse what it's looking at. So up till now, Google has not really understood what it's looking at, but it's worked really well. But if you could actually elevate search to truly understand what you're crawling, that's really profound. So here is, you know, the visual element of a lion within a video. Um, I thought that was really impressive. You can see that yeah. being applied. You can actually see that being applied very much in like enterprise use cases. So I think there wasn't as big a focus on kind of their enterprise stack, but that knowledge mining thing is actually quite interesting if they can really get traction there. Remember when that thing you were talking about where Google Maps phones up a, a, a store owner to try and find out opening hours or try and make a reservation on behalf of the Google user? and uses natural language ticks like, and this was two years ago, I think. La natural language ticks yeah. like, uh, yeah, I gotcha. <laughs> but that was, that was really used to screen calls, right? That's where it's been actually really useful because we have so much spam that actually it's better to let an AI talk to another robot caller <laughs> and, screen, and screen calls than it is to also do mass, mass opening hour collection at scale right so in in advance of some memorial day holidays like what are the opening hours actually going to be instead of 20 people phoning up one bakery 
why not update it in Google Maps based off of one robocall from yeah. Google Maps? I mean, that it, was a great application, but yeah, and I appreciate yeah. also screening robocalls. But now that, what has that evolved into? So in with Mum, it has evolved into, and this was sort of baffling, but I can talk to Pluto or I can talk to a paper airplane and the AI will, as if it's doing a, a, a drama school exercise, it will speak to me in the mindset of the paper airplane. That was really freaky. It reminded me of that film, Her, with yeah. Joaquin Phoenix. It had that same feel of somehow, yeah, personifying and embodying the, the object. It was a weird um, way to do the demo, but the point it proved was impressive, and I guess it had good learning applications. But the use cases beyond that are just really impressive. So what's happening? It, it wasn't. It was natural enough, and it was doing really intuitive things with baseline knowledge so talking about wearing a coat because it's cold you know that's mm. great i thought it was really impressive one thing that freaked me out they did really cool things with google photos which was understandable given that they've got billions of photos that they can actually train from and they were obviously showing the whole fill frames ai thing where they use cinematic photos to take two photos taken i don't know a second apart or two seconds apart and then they fill the frames which was freaky but i've kind of seen it done before and i kind of get where that's going but then they referenced something really weird which was pattern recognition for google photos to find weird patterns in your photo history that you might not have spotted but then also the memories feature to be able to find and delete swathes of your photo memories but it horrified me because it's exactly like that black mirror episode and the way they refer to photos as memories and the way they can use ai to trawl it find themes within there of you know moments you don't want to remember people you don't want to remember whatever it is things that are traumatic and and delete them i don't know it's like that's now 10 years time when that's more tightly integrated to your actual memory it, it, it doesn't know it, it, it just i had alarm bells of just Wait a minute. Charlie Brooker warned us of this. <laughs> this is this is very much the Doug, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I'm going to block you. And then it just gets blocked from all forms of never existed. Everything. Can't even find you, photos of you. You literally will just be disappeared from yeah. my world, my cyber web. It's yeah. that was a bit freaky. In this image I've been Stalin esque airbrushed out, backfilled with some hedge. So <laughs> <laughs> So that, yeah, Little Moments was called cool. the orange backpack that you could follow its story. And I guess the Google, as I say, always sort of treading this line between worthiness and I guess, what's the right, what's an empowering way to talk about cancel culture? Proactive elision culture. So ask Lambda. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, um, so tre Google was treading that fine line. So the, the one here that I thought was uh, an interesting th thing to call out and probably really really useful for a lot of people who it applies to is uh, people who are transgender going back and removing sections of the photo history which would otherwise be really upsetting to resurface hmm. and so the product i mean actually that is why is that why is that useful uh, it's it's useful and interesting not only to those people but actually to everyone because everyone has that and you only realize it when you are sensitive and nuanced about one group of people's needs you it actually illuminates a whole range of user needs and in this case google photos with its behaviors around little patterns or memories or what have you and it's kind of curated little videos it doesn't know what it's doing and it will show you <laughs> stuff and it's like Google, you've always been doing this. I'm not sure it's completely okay. iOS does it too with Photos app. And you know, sometimes it's delightful and charming and whimsical and like a wonderfully curated thing. But always, you know, the back of your mind, you're like, hold on, wait, have I just let um, a film auteur uh, director run through an entire back catalogue of all the photos of my life? Mm-hmm. But then you apply it to what, what, what I'd find is like, those are very consumer focused things that are treated in terms of your data sphere. And then you're, you know, you're giving Google the ability to just remove those things, which like you said, for some people would actually be very beneficial. 
I imagine it will be very useful for them in the whole right to be forgotten requests as well to basically apply that to their entire way they index the internet. It does get into weird territory of just how much power they have to just, if you can delete and remove memories from photos for an individual and you are the leading and probably, let's face it, almost have a monopoly on search, you can pretty much rewrite access to all information. And that's where there's a weird sort of, they do tread a fine line and I don't think they are the, the bad dystopian the bad guys but they have a lot of power and i think they're demonstrating fantastic functionality just got to wonder all the different ways it could be used and could be interpreted that's all the right to be forgotten is a literal can of worms and when the eu came up with the right to be forgotten i just i really wonder what paradigm they were using because it wasn't certainly a paradigm that recognizes what the internet is and how information persists in a digital age. Conversation for another time. I want to ask you about Canvas. So Smart Canvas is like Google Docs, but with more meat or something. Like what actually is Canvas? Oh, that was the bit that they focused on on the enterprise, wasn't it? Where it's, it's kind of remote working collaboration, but you can kind of like join the document <laughs> is that the best way of putting it like i'm going to yeah, so i'm calling you in the to, word doc <laughs> previously had to set up a meeting and then screen share and so the faces were at the bottom or on the right hand side now the faces are like on the page i mean is that all we did and no, then but because now your call Slack. is also there right so right. you're just you're like oh i'm not setting up a meeting i happen to have this document open and these people happen to have time in their in their back-to-back -back meeting just going to extract you from your other meeting into you're joining my document and you're just going to sit there i i think it was quite clever i think i've noticed actually there are some features on google docs like when we've tried it out and been been using it to collaborate that are just better than the microsoft equivalent but then there are other things that are kind of hygiene factors that are just not there so they have this weird balance with google where they're doing really cool collaboration stuff and things that Microsoft should watch and go, oh, let's make that part of our stack to make sure that we're still leading. But then there's other things in Google Docs and their Google Sheets and all the other products that just lack basic functionality that you get from Microsoft Office. So I don't know, there's definitely an audience for it. And some of it was pretty cool, especially the, the way they've kind of made it mural documents and a team's call all in one. And that's quite cool. I can imagine that changes how people think about work and might mean that there's less meetings because people are focused more around the thing you're making rather than joining a call to talk about the thing that you're making and screen sharing, which mm. God would make my life mean. easier. Yeah. I see what so you mean. I think they're in the right direction. They, they're thinking about it properly. Right. They have had 15 years. I, th I think the technical <laughs> analysis was, um, was good, right? Which is that essentially the workspace suite is torn between trying to be all those things that Excel used to be versus trying to compete with Slack and others. And yeah, I mean, when I talk about Google I.O. as kind of a list of newly adopted, new, newly released features, more like a release notes, I'm talking about things like, oh, we added emojis and reaction emojis to, you know, we, we did a Slack on our, on our workspaces. Anyway. There was one section that I think everyone switched off, which was when they talked about lots of qubits to do error-corrected cor quantum computing. And the only way they could make it work is to bring on uh, that famous actor, Michael or something. And they just dropped him in. <laughs> We're like, Wait, no, I, didn't, I didn't know who that was. You will. He's been, what's he been in? He's been in... Do you know what was really impressive? The anyway. whole thing was live. That was live. And it had comedy timing and it actually worked. Oh, I was going to say the acting was shocking, but anyway. It was the... rehearsed to death. It worked. It actually it zinged. It had pace and it had complex camera work and they managed to deliver it live and then cut back to the amphitheater. Fair enough. Although I think, yeah, they really, they were clearly struggling with how do we keep people interested talking about what we've done with qubits and making an error-corrected quantum computer. Q, famous actor. <laughs> that was very much it. What's happening with Tensor? Don't know. I think we're on Tensor version 4 now. Like, no one has a better set of data centers for doing AI than Google. 
So if you were to sum up this whole Google I thing, it's shifted massively away from being what's the latest in Android and Chrome to being watch all the things we're doing with AI, like every single part of what they're doing, whether it's Google Maps AR overlays or crazy contextual conversation with Lambda or, you know, ridiculous clever things with photos and, and filling in the frames in between your photos or removing your memories. It's all just AI on steroids. And maybe that's like, that's the theme that they don't want to tell you about, because if you really pieced it all together, you'd realize when they do that whole smart canvas thing, they're not bothering to compete with the hygiene factors of Microsoft because they know that ultimately it will probably be Google Assistant that's doing all those front work things for you and you'll be doing human activities. And maybe they're just going to like take all that away which would be lovely. Are you having trouble using Google? I figured this out. I was going to message you. I figured out what it what it is. So, you know, have you ever watched YouTube and it seems like every YouTube influencer is sponsored by a VPN, like every form of VPN. I use a VPN for like secure data, banking, all the other stuff. And it's like, sometimes I just leave it on. I forget about it because that's just good privacy behavior. But then you go to Google and you get forced through like captures and various things. And it's really frustrating because um, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. why is this happening? Which make a Google search go from being, you know, 0.17 seconds like it normally is to being like a minute of your life as you frantically try and click on fire extinguishers yeah. and identify and the fire hydrants. It's which nightmare. of these is a boat? Yeah, which of the, <laughs> the boats are hard. As of the bicycles that aren't motorbikes and it just really throws you off. I mean, I'm just using my own guesswork here, but the, the things that Google wants to avoid is you scraping the search results like Bing used to do. Did they? Caught, yeah, they were caught doing it because Google wow. inserted some some strings into particular search results pages that then exactly appeared on the Bing equivalent. Interesting. And then Bing, you know, were called out on it and publicly so, quite rightly. That's one thing. Another thing is if you did, and this again just is my speculation, I think if you did enough click farm work, you could do SEO by bouncing off certain pages deliberately. So one of the signals that must affect the search rankings is when people went to a page, did they immediately bounce back to search and click on another link? And therefore mm. that page was probably of less quality, I could infer if I was trying to use one of the signals there. Now, if I set up a click click farm in name a country, then could I get 100 people for eight hours a day to repeatedly bounce off certain people and or click through as a first choice something on the third page and thereby help you know whatever oh, it is my... so could i can i do that lots of lots of stuff lots of nefarious Got a lot things. Of experience in this and then <laughs> and then obviously you know it's important i think and again just using speculation here i think it's important to google running the kind of service that it is running and for free let's not forget that the people are people and that you know they're identifiable users that actually if you break that you break the business model. So, if you're logged in, then it should work. Do you know what I think it's time for? I think it's time for the not a sponsor segment. Cool. I think it's my turn this week, isn't it? I so think it is, Jonathan. This week, our podcast is definitely not being paid to promote Brave Browser. So, you and I have had this debate before about using... Chrome, Firefox, Safari, or recently Brave. I've been using it for a couple of years now, and I've really found a couple of things. Firstly, it's really simple to just have a lot of things blocked by default. So trackers and ads are blocked by standard. A lot of the tracking cookies and fingerprinting is all blocked by default. So you don't need to set any of that up or install loads of ad blockers or no scripts or any of that stuff. And you can vary the amount that they're used for. But the interesting thing about Brave is that it pays you to view ads, which is kind of the reverse model of Google. And what you just said about, you know, Google's for free, they still make a lot of money from sending you ads, right? They sell you attention. And in this case, what Brave does is it allows you to opt in and say, okay, I want to see ads every 10 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever, and they'll pop up in the corner you click on them and there'll be full page website ads. So it's not just a 
hidden in, in parts of the website. It's actually, we want your attention. If you click on this, we'll show you the full web page, but you get paid in basic attention token, which is the cryptocurrency that facilitates the entire experience. You can use that to earn money. You can use it to tip websites you like, which is good for things like Wikipedia. And they can earn off it because they've taken your attention. They're doing a good job. Do you have any questions about this that would be useful to listeners? So if I've understood correctly, Brave is a brilliant browser. Is it fast? Yeah, it's actually just based on Chromium, the same open source browser that Chrome is based on, apart from because it's got so many inbuilt shields and things that it blocks that are just bloatware for the web. It's a lot faster. Good mm. thing is all your Chrome extensions and plugins all work on it because it's based off the same original source code. Right all so yeah. MetaMask works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. MetaMask, LastPass, all of your like Google Docs extensions, all of those that integrate in. The only thing is you don't get any of Google's own bloatware that they put in for their own tracking purposes to gather more data. So in some ways, it's a win-win. You either get paid to view ads and have a secure browsing experience that's just like Chrome, or your browsing experience pays the websites that you go to but you still have a nice secure experience like on Chrome. Excellent. So that was this week's not a sponsor and it's Brave Browser Brave. I think it's time for This Week in Crypto. This Week in Crypto. And I thought, I mean, I, I don't know if you follow the news. There's been just a few things happening this week. So I thought maybe if we start with like quick fire news round and then we can jump into the bigger topics of what's happened. Yeah, no, I love the idea of Quickfire News Round, and I think it was me who originally concocted it. And when we tried it out, it was demonstrably proven to not work at all. Like, it, it doesn't work as a format. But yeah, I love it. Okay, talk me through how you think Quickfire News Round works. So we could say things like, BlockFi accidentally gave people Bitcoin instead of US dollars. Oops. Oops. <laughs> Dapper and then, has been sued, claiming that NBA Top Shots is a security. Does that pass the Howie test? No. <laughs> I noticed that pretty soon, probably Saturday, it's Bitcoin Pizza Day again. So the Bitcoin Pizza thing is crazy, right? Because Anthony Pompliano has set up his own company called Bitcoin Pizza, which is meant to commemorate Bitcoin Pizza Day and like mark that. It's launched in America, but it doesn't accept cryptocurrency payments at the moment. So it's it's kind of like a, a very ironic situation. Which... It was originally Domino's Pizzas, right? Mm, Papa John's. No, Papa John's. Yeah, but now it's... So it would have been worth about $163 million, the amount that he originally paid. But he didn't transact it with Papa John's, did he? No, it was with the owner of the franchise, mm. who is probably nowhere to be found, on a beach somewhere. I noticed that Wells Fargo is offering crypto to their wealthiest clients. But only qualified investors, which when is offering hilarious. crypto, what you mean is the ability to do um, trades over the counter. Yeah, yeah. They've not gone as far as um, as BlockFi to just give out <laughs> crypto instead of US dollars. Hasn't Polkadot um, launched parachains now? Yeah, I wonder, did you want to make this a bigger topic? Because I No, because I'm saving I... it for the next one. Okay. Polkadot launching parachains is just... they. They're doing the thing on their roadmap that they're supposed to do, which is connect up different chains to each other. So well done. Yeah, exactly. And in any case, I mean, I would have thought that it would improve the, you know, the valuation of Polkadot. But looking at the week gone by, it doesn't seem to have helped its valuation at all. At no, it's all. not sinking. Anyway. Did, did you see um, something hilarious on Binance Smart Chain? Well, that's what I wanted to leave a bit more time for. So Binance Smart Chain is forking quite a lot. And it's generating a lot of uncles. Now, I don't really understand what that means. But what it worries what worries me about it is that, first of all, Binance Smart Chain was meant to be a kind of Ethereum, but without the expensive gas fees and, and not decentralized because it was run by Binance. How decentralized is BSC? I think they have 11 validators. I think it's 11 validators on the Binance chain and they select 21 active validators on the smart chain each day. That's not very decentralized at all, is it? Am I right? 11 That's validator basic. nodes? That's right. That's basically EOS. EOS has 21. That's um, not, I mean, not impressed by the number. <laughs> Both numbers are small. 
So just for comparison, Ethereum 2, currently not fully launched, but they're doing all the beacon chain staking, has 143,146 validators at time of recording. Mm. So it puts it into perspective of like done properly versus done terribly and rushed. So is there a scenario in which BSC, Binance Smart Chain, can somehow collapse? It's like we discussed previously. What's the point of using Binance Smart Chain if you take on more risk than you were just using Binance? So if the network is constantly forking and apparently for every one block that's part of the main chain, there's five uncles, which are like stranded forked blocks that are left over. I don't think it actually is making people lose money at the moment. It's just weird and poor quality and not reassuring for any blockchain that's meant to have that much value transacted on it. Let's turn to This Week in Crypto, the main part of it. This Week in Crypto. Not much happened, right? Quiet week. Tranquil, some might say. Lots of things happened this week. It was very eventful. So when you give me the summary, and then I'll give you my summary. All right. So if we look back over the past week, Bitcoin started off at about 50 or 60 thousand dollars and then it went down to thirty thousand dollars and then went back up to about forty thousand dollars and a lot of people would say oh elon you're doing broken but actually it's probably lots of other things like people being over leveraged and and or shadowy figures lurking in the background occasionally having their secret plans posted on 4chan revealing mass market manipulation or it could just be um, a few people closing out their positions due to things that are happening in the stock market or things that are happening around tax. Or it could be any num- literally any number of other reasons. It's, it's, it's crypto, people. It's going to be volatile. So we have seen drops of this scale in the middle of a bull run before. It's not that remarkable, a pullback of 40%. And it may be that the bull run continues prognosis tbd jonathan that's a good take were you panicked did your um did your jelly hands need to be popped in the freezer (laughs) i think my problem is that i had a dress rehearsal for my jelly hands and my paper (laughs) my flimsy tissue paper hands uh, crumbled about two three weeks ago and they crumbled at a ridiculous point they crumbled at like a dip down into 48k (laughs) Which, looking back on it now, is like, what was I thinking? And uh, and then I did the worst thing, which was I was out in stablecoin land going, oh, thankfully I'm safe. But then beginning to fret. It's a lonely, cold place to be out in stablecoin land when the rest of the world is moving on without you. And you're thinking, will I get back in? At a loss, at a gain, at a, oh, who cares? I need to just get back in. And that whole experience, traumatic as it was, has made me, this time around, it's a sort of painful, very recent memory reminder of what you should not do. What you should not do is anything. What you should do is just hold on through, just hold on through, unless it's a crash, in which case you need to get out, first to stable coin, and then to commercial real estate. Thanks for that not financial advice. So... Funnily enough, I was going to say this weird last few days, like I think last, what, 24 hours, last 48 hours has been very weird, quite funny. We're recording on Thursday. Yeah. So, so the, the day of reckoning was the Wednesday from midnight, from the, from the beginning of Wednesday to the end of Wednesday was just the craziest of seesaws. But this may be the most bullish day for crypto as an asset class. And it's weird. I was talking with my friend Andy Hamilton who you met at my stag. Um, I'm familiar with Andy Hamilton. And he was articulating this in a really weird way, not weird way, in a really good way, which was a perspective that I hadn't thought because I was thinking it's a really bullish thing for crypto because the last time we had a crash, which was March 17th, I want to say, or March 12th, you know, last year, the big COVID pandemic crash where everything fell in unison. So when that happened, there were some smart contracts that got caught short because it was just too fast to crash and people lost money and some of the DeFi infrastructure kind of broke down and showed it was uh, it was unable to keep up with the volume. None of that happened this time, right? No DeFi smart contracts on Ethereum fell over. Finance is another thing. The fees were very high, but all of that worked. 
you know, on Binance, the main exchange, there were market makers who just died a death just because they were just getting so quickly liquidated. They just, they just stopped. <laughs> and you literally just lost a lot of market makers in that whole exchange. Whereas the automated market makers in DeFi, they kept running. They kept providing liquidity, matching up trades, even though the fees were extortionately high because so many people were trying to cash out, right? That was my case for this is working. This has actually performed yeah. a huge stress test when people thought it wouldn't, right? Coinbase went down, as in you couldn't log in and couldn't make it work. Binance Crack went down. Kraken, you couldn't. Binance was, wasn't, wasn't Binance one of the ones that was actually usable still? Sorry, during... it didn't go down, but their market makers evaporated. So mm. you basically had like almost just huge spreads everywhere because it was just so, chaos. And what does that mean in practice? It creates a lot of panic and also means that people who have positions or any funds that they want to quickly move into some other format, they just can't. And it's exactly why decentralized cryptocurrency based on a distributed ledger technology was not supposed to like happen. It's exactly what this is not meant to be about. So if you end up having to depend on a centralized exchange during a kind of equivalent of a run on the banks, and then you find that you can't access your funds, then it's like, oh, wait, what? so why were we doing this in the first place? Whereas now, because of decentralized finance, there are all these other platforms where you can just go there. They just run themselves through smart contracts. And you're telling me that if I went on to, for example, Uniswap, it wouldn't have been completely swamped. I'd have just had to... Yeah, no, there money. were huge fees. There were huge, right. huge so, fees. So it's still the gas fees are high, but the bottlenecks. It's not like there. with the exchanges where you can't log in. <laughs> exactly. No one, no one prevented you accessing because they just went, "Fuck it, we're shutting down." It was more congestion, and a lot of that gets hopefully solved in the next iterations of those protocols. Right? We we know that there's congestion on the Ethereum network. We know there's high transaction fees. That's not something new. This was a stress test. But what was really interesting when I was talking with Andy about it is he looked at it very differently. He looked at it from an asset class as a whole and said, imagine if you're, you know, a, a big fund with responsibilities to invest other people's money. And normally you'd have to point to tangible value, you know, so booked value of a company or the value of its assets or loans it's secured against, all of that stuff. And recently, People have been pointing to commodities due to their established market value or gold. During this market, that's been the way that they've articulated it. And crypto has none of the, you know, what the governor of the Bank of England said, there's no intrinsic value. You can't point to anything fundamentally. And it's very hard to sit in front of an investment committee and make a case for it. Because all you can really do is point to pricing charts with crypto. There's no, it's hard to convince people otherwise. But on that basis, if you were buying sort of at 50k, you'd want to show that there's a real floor below it and that it's not going to just drop out and drop to like, you know, $100 by the next day, which a lot of people still think is plausible. Whereas what you had yesterday is you had this massive sell-off and on the same day, you had a huge buyback creating this weird pattern, this huge panic selling, massive, massive people stepping in to buy up that huge dip. And a what is at the moment fairly clear price floor and so you can kind of tell your boss that's the downside price you know it's not a case of valuing a company and, and kind of pointing at microsoft stock and saying where will it go to based on its assets and its fundamentals and everything it's a case of pointing to the technicals on the chart and that was really interesting because i hadn't thought of it from that perspective i'd thought of it from a technology perspective and what the platform's doing but price fundamentals in this huge sell-off have been the strongest they've ever been Okay, so that means now that Bitcoin can't go below what number? So it went as low as 30,000 and it went kind of exactly 30,000.00. So normally it goes a bit above or below a certain, you know, round number level, but it pretty much stopped at that exact one and got bought all the way back up on the same day to sort of like 36, 37,000. Let's talk about some of the real reasons for why what happened happened. I mean, it's largely down to people who were using too much leverage and people are pointed to a lot of, a lot of signs, right? I mean, there were many canaries in the mine, whether it's NFT mania, dog money, Elon's tweets, 
people with crazy leverage, Bitcoin longs being at an all-time high. So there's a lot of people betting that Bitcoin would have gone up. It had kind of ranged, and people talk about a wick-off distribution, a lot of the technical terms around how they analyze it, that it was kind of pretty clearly trending down. You had another thing of bearish divergence where you had the price kind of going up slowly for the last few weeks whilst the RSI, the relative strength index, was going down. There's a lot of signs that people were saying this was going to happen. People didn't think it would be this, this, this absolutely insane, but a lot of signs pointed to the fact that it would have a dip of some sort. I definitely didn't think it would dip this low, but then that's what makes it newsworthy, right? But it's interesting, Glassnode, who do a lot of on-chain analysis on the Bitcoin network, said that this Bitcoin sell-off is historic in magnitude of losses realized by short-term holders. So they look at the on-chain activity of like right. unspent transactions on the uh, unspent outputs on the blockchain network, on the Bitcoin network, and they look at the only the spent outputs younger than 155 days as an indicator of short-term behavior. And this was the biggest sell-off since three different occasions. So February 2018, start of the big bear market that lasted a few years. November 2018, which was the bear capitulation of that year, where it dipped down to like 3K. And the March 2020 COVID sell-off last year, March 12th or whatever. Those are the only times that we've had such historic like sell-offs of this type, what tends to happen at those points is you've just got this massive shift of short-term investors who've just recently got into Bitcoin selling the bottom and it gets bought up by long-term investors, which is the wrong transfer of wealth that you'd like to see, but it, it happens, right? Newbies come in, panic sell, sell the bottom. It gets bought up by a whale and that price floor is then the thing that moves forward. So... I don't know. I'm looking at this and thinking from what all the, all the analysis that's come out, there's very little leverage left in the system. Now it's been fully cleansed <laughs> and a lot of people got ruined. So maybe that will mean level heads and a bit of sideways action. And then, you know, more sensible heads prevail on in the next journey for this asset class as a whole. So we'll see. The, the shenanigans all in between China and Elon and everything else. The China have... news wasn't news though, right? That that was a restated position, a restating of a position that was, I think, two years ago that got picked up by Reuters and ran with. I don't know why. Biden's just announced closing a tax, tax loophole for greater than 10K US transfers of, of cryptocurrency that need to be reported to IRS. Whatever you put it down to, there's been a lot more noise around Bitcoin in mainstream media and in all places, really. In some cases, there's like real, genuine, massive personal financial loss for new entrants. In parallel to that, there's a lot of attention and new people entering the space. Yeah. And a lot of people are blaming Elon. And whilst I think it's fun to blame him because he's just being annoying, I don't think he's necessarily the cause of all of this. He's just the the kind of the clown on Twitter who's making the, the waves and people are running with it. But this is his Elon gate, isn't it? This is his scandal that he wanted. And I was starting to speculate that maybe he's like, maybe under weird circumstances, he's just fallen down the crypto rabbit hole and is learning as he goes. And unlike everyone else, when they tweet nonsense because they're learning about crypto, when he does it, everyone takes it very seriously because he's he's like the super smart guy. Everything he says must be gold. And then I sort of, and I messaged you about this. I was like, is that what's happening? Are we watching Elon? That's fun. And then it kind of dawned on me recently when he had that spat with Peter McCormack on Twitter that this is personal for Elon and he's getting emotional about it. And it's very rare that you see him get emotional in public or even on Twitter. He's like, he's a very hard person to pin down, right? But he lost his call when he was messaging Peter McCormack because Peter McCormack, who's a Bitcoin podcaster who got into the space kind of 2017, he called him out and was like, Elon, here's all the things that you don't know that you're wrong about in the Bitcoin space. So Peter McCormack 
went on a bit of a tweet storm just giving loads of reasons why you know elon doesn't really know what it's on about when he talks about bitcoin and elon kind of plays his hand and he just goes hey cryptocurrency quote-unquote experts ever heard of paypal it's possible maybe that i know more than you realize about how money works and that's when it kind of clicked right this is this is not the the genius almost super smart ai type elon musk this is some person who was kicked out of paypal pushed out by peter thiel and the board went in trying to revolutionize the banking and financial system and he thank god he did because he gave us like tesla and spacex and the boring company and so many cool things but i think he's really bitter that satoshi did what he couldn't and that now he's not talked about in that circle and so he's trying to get in on it and he's getting in on it with doge trying to just squeeze his way in to be the cool guy in the finance space that he always wanted to be when he first got into this and it, yeah it dawned on me like why would the world's you know third richest person who runs some of the largest most disruptive companies in the world and wants to take people to mars and everything why is he why is he wasting time shilling dog money and it's because it's personal it's because he really is hurt that he's not the person doing this and he's not satoshi and he didn't reinvent the entire world's financial system that's my thinking i think it became really apparent when he lost his call and had a go at some random guy that runs a bitcoin podcast i mean that's 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 not the elon jedi that we're used to that's a cold egotistical person who's got his emotions hurt by bitcoin twitter gosh it's a theory i mean there there have been a lot of instance in the past i think you called me out on thailand divergate uh, as an instance where elon just went a little bit off the rails with his uh, accusations and took things personally on twitter when someone insulted his his diving schematics for a, a human-sized mini-person sub mm, true well look uh, we're not going to get to the bottom of this until until later on this evening when I when I talk talk to Elon on the phone. <laughs> now on the, on the subject of community driven coins that are still incredibly good value, that reminds me of some some coins that I wanted to bring to your attention as part of shitcoin or fake coin. Shitcoin or fake coin. So do you want to go first? Yeah, I'd love to. Okay, so um, my first one is Baby Shark Coin, and that's S H A R K. Um, it's BP twenty, so it's on Binance Smart Chain, and um, it's quite like um, you know, like Safe Mars. No, I don't. <laughs> What's wait? I know Safe Moon, Safe Mars. I guess you assume is like Safe Moon, but a different. Part of the solar system <laughs> why is it like that well yeah so it, I mean, it's like safe mars in the sense that it functions as a kind of autonomous yield and liquidity generation protocol you know the kind of thing so the way the way it works is like this right so every time you transact with baby shark you get like an eight percent transaction fee and then three percent of that is redistributed among all the other baby shark holders and then 3% is locked away in the liquidity pool and uh, 2% goes to charity. So that's every transaction um, that happens. And that is uh, Baby Shark Coin. So that sounds like Bible Pay Coin, but with less charitable giving. You didn't ask which charity. Uh, which charity? Stuff to do with the C, whatever. Okay, so the next coin is Gruffalo Coin. And that's G-R-U-F-F. Gruff. So Gruffalo Coin is a decentralized uh, finance yield aggregator and optimizer for the Binance. So this is another one uh, that's on BP20 for the Binance Smart Chain. And what's weird is they, they also write and Ethereum, but I think they don't mean that, which is used for pancake swap cake. So Gruffalo holders place their tokens in the management pool to claim pancake swap farming profit, which is sent to the pool in the form of Binance Coin Rewards, BNB. The share of profit 
is proportionate. So the more tokens you stake, the higher the payout. Wait, wait, wait. Why? Where, what's the BNB part of this got to do with Guffalo coin? So do you know how uh, you would know this because you often go into PancakeSwap? So you know when you take an LP position, you combine BNB, often you're combining a pair of coins? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're staking like an LP token that is BNB plus Gruff. And then that's in the pool and the profit that comes out is its yield in BNB. Um, that, that should have nothing to do with the underlying token in your pairing, right? Like, what's that got to do with Gruffalo coin again? Nothing. This is made up. <laughs> like, I don't get the BNB part. So it's designed for pancake swap, and then when you when you stake it, it generates more BNB because you have to stake it in a pool that is a Gruffalo BNB pool. Uh, sorry, a farm that is a, a Buffalo BNB LP. So the, farm. the purpose of this Gruffalo coin is to stake it on a liquid on a on a, a DeFi yield farming thing. That's its purpose. Yeah, I would describe it's, it as a kind of autonomous aggregator and optimizer. It's nonsense. This this is I love it because who doesn't love the Gruffalo? But you, you don't know how this works. <laughs> this is well. This it's got to be the mm, fake coin. Tricky. So to quote from their website, if I may. Oh God. Gruffalo is being built by a group of anonymous developers, and it goes to show there is such a thing as a Gruffalo. Hundred percent fake. This thing. This thing. There's no way this thing's real. Baby shark, whatever it is, I still don't get it. I'm going to wait before you know you before I request your final answer. I'm going to just also read to you. Also on the website, they they write the the following. They say, and this is a a quote: "Our code speaks for itself," and they put "speaks" in square brackets. I don't know why they did that. Which one are you referring to? The baby shark or the gruffalo? Gruffalo coin. You're really trying hard on the gruffalo. It's it's so fake. It's there's no way that that has any purpose because you just described something that seems to be to do with yield farming, and yet this isn't a yield farming coin. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to say the buffalo, buffalo, gruffalo. The gruffalo coin is fake. The baby shark is a shit coin. Correct. <sighs> Good. Why baby shark again? For the fish charities. Let's not even go. So. <laughs> That was very entertaining and right, my turn. First one is called My DeFi Pet, or as you would call it, My Defi Pet, which is codename D-P-E-T, like D-Pet. And I guess, you know, we talked about Axie Infinity last week. So I guess this is like a bit like that, where it's a blockchain based pet game and my DeFi pet coin is just the in-game currency. So it's used for sort of buying stuff and governance and those type of things. And it's great. You can, you can breed new monsters and you can trade them and you can like fight with them and do battles. And, um, and I think you can like evolve them like a Pokemon. So they, they evolve into different pets. And uh, yeah, my DeFi pet. Okay, tell me the other one. Um, you're going to love this one. Brings back memories. So the other one is called Tamagatoshi, which is code is just T-O-Y, toy. And it's it's like a Tamagotchi. So do you remember those little virtual yes. pets? It's like that. And it can die, so you need to look after it. It's like... It can die. Is it an NFT or a coin? It's a coin. So you need what does a coin do? You need that to breed. So these you look after them, feed them, play with them. But you can breed them with other Tamagotoshis if you've got more than one or if other people have them. But you need toy, the coin, to breed them. So but it's here's, the smart love potion. The small love potion of It's the equivalent of that, but here's the really cool thing about Tamagotoshi. They've got a birth rate halvening cycle of every four weeks. So there's only a certain number that can be birthed within that four week thing. And every four weeks it gets halved. So they're getting more and more scarce as it goes on. When was it launched? I think it was like end of last year, like November last year, but 
I don't know what they're up to now, but it's like there were loads to start with, and now there's not many. So, um, what do they look like? These tamagotoshis? They're this little. Um, well, don't go on the website. Little kind of like crypto punks, but of a animal, like a monster, like a tamagotchi. What would that even mean? You mean it's pixelated? What what makes it like a crypto punk? <laughs> oh, because it's pixelated. That's yeah. what I was going for. Like little right. screen yeah. ones, but you still do the same things with them. So it's still like a little game. Um, so you still can feed it. You still have to look after it. You can like sell them to other people, but you sell them for toy and every, and toy is like the currency of doing all of it. But you also, you need that toy to breed them. And that's the important bit because they are ultimately very scarce. First of all, you've done well in the sense that you've made two that are of the same theme. So thank you and well done. You're welcome. Second of all, um, just going back to the first one, they, they they seem quite similar. So, with with my my pet, my DeFi pet, my DeFi pet, what is the DeFi element of that? I mean, it's decentralized. It's it's blockchain based pet game. So, and it's on Binance Smart Chain. So you you can only do it in the blockchain. I guess that's what makes it DeFi. And what what do they look like? These DeFi pets, just little monsters. Yeah, fake coin. <laughs> so that's the fake coin, and the other one's a shit coin. <laughs> what? What? Because of the little monsters. I don't know. Let me just let's just say it's your tell. <sighs> okay. Um. So my DeFi pet is a shit coin. No. <laughs> and. Tamagotoshi is the fake coin. This is just oh my goodness! Yes, finally! <laughs> it's literally been so many weeks of not a clear victory. No, great. I'm glad you liked Tamagotoshi. Another winning idea that we <laughs> abandon. To you know, there's probably like there's probably not, but I wish there was one listener who was just going and making all of these fake yeah, coin ideas seeing, and just seeing like, how they do. Seeing how they do, yeah, yeah. that's a random thing. Anyway. That was fun. Good podcast. Great pod. Speak to you soon. Till next week. See you, Doug. Started during lockdown. Needed something to do. They looked at each other. They said, hey, I like talking to you. And so from a garden shed in a box room in West London, they're discussing tech. It's the Small Time Best Podcast. Doug is drinking a Party.